been saying in the announcements, I guess, but um, I find that I skipped chapter 16. I didn't do it intentionally, but after I go over this material four, five, six, seven times, uh, sometimes I can't remember what I said and what I thought. Uh, so, and I try to mark it each time at the end, and I failed to do that that week. So I went from finishing 15 to chapter 17. So uh, this will look funny on the tapes, but because they're, they're labeled by chapters, but we'll go back and fill it in. So let's go back to Jeremiah 16 and pick that up. We don't want any of God's works to fall to the ground, uh, either by us dropping them or by overlooking them. As a matter of a little bit of review, chapter 15, God said, in essence, I've had it. You can send Moses and Samuel before me, and it's not going to change my mind. This thing is now going to happen. It is a certainty. There is no more relenting, no more repenting, no more show of compassion or mercy. I'm just going to turn it loose. It will happen. Who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem, verse 5? Speaking both to the church and to the nation. Verse 9, I think, points out that it speaks primarily to the church. She that has born seven languishes. I talked a bit about that. Uh, Revelation talks about seven churches at the end, and Isaiah talks about seven churches being planted in the wilderness. God will draw his remnant from all of the bodies that are out there. So she is the one that languishes. Israel is twelve tribes. The church is represented by seven, not twelve at this point anyway. He does say in verse 11, it will be well with our remnant, but you can't stop the northern steel. You don't, you won't have enough steel to stop it, verse 12. Jeremiah then prayed and said, I found your words, verse 16, and it was joy and rejoicing of my heart, and I think they are to us. Uh, when we see that God is going to save those who will obey, uh, our biggest frustration comes in, when are you going to do this? And his biggest frustration, of course, is, when will you do what I said? So there are frustrations on both sides of this, at this point. And Jeremiah said that he hadn't mocked. He sat alone because of God's hand. And we pretty much sit alone, don't we? There aren't too many who are willing to listen. And he says, are you going to be a liar? My pain is incredible. And that takes some boldness to go before God with that attitude. We have to be very, very careful. But God said, verse 19, If you take forth the precious from the vial, you shall be as my mouth. Let them return to you, but return not you to them. The way this thing is set up, the way God is going to do it, is that he is going to start something and he will stir people to come to it. It is not the job of the end-time leadership of the church to draw together a remnant. God tells the leadership and the remnant that he will stir that to happen. He knows whom to stir, he knows when to stir them, he knows where to stir them to go. That's the way it is going to be accomplished. It is not going to be the accomplishment of men going out and trying to gather the sheep up. So he even told Jeremiah, and I think that the principle here certainly fits what he tells us in Zechariah 3 and 4 and in the book of Haggai, that you don't return to them. If you separate it off from them, and you have made the changes that are requisite, follow the instructions that God has given, don't go back to them. Let them come to you. You're doing what's right. It's their responsibility. Just like it is the responsibility of every one of us to return to God. It is God's words that they are not willing to listen to nor obey. 
They have their own ideas, their own thoughts, their own feelings about where they want to be, what they want to do. And God says, it is our responsibility to follow through with what he says, not follow our own ideas. We'll see that brought out a little later today with other scriptures. He further brings that out in chapter 16. We'll go down to it here in a moment. But let's skip on to there. The word of the eternal came to me, saying, You shall not take you a wife, neither shall you have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the eternal concerning the sons and concerning the daughters that are born in this place, and concerning their mothers that bore them, or bear them, and concerning their fathers that begat them in this land. There's a time coming, there was then, when the Babylonian army was going to come in and destroy that people, and it would be dire consequences for any with little children. This is also mentioned in Matthew 24, just as we come to the end of the age. And therefore, Jeremiah, being an end-time prophecy, fits for now as well. Matthew 24, it says, Woe to them that are with child, or give such in that day. Those with babies on the way, or who are very young, had better watch out. We need to take every precaution at some point not to have more children. So, this was good in Jeremiah's day, considering the evil and the horror that was about to occur, and it is also good instruction for today, because of the evil that is about to come now. And there's no denying that Matthew 24 is a today prophecy. I don't know how you could ever deny Jeremiah being that as well, but Matthew 24, I don't see how anyone who is aware of the truth at all today could deny that. And perhaps it is time to be considering that very strongly. Uh, you got to plan at some point. If you don't plan, what do you become? And even with careful planning, sometimes accidents do happen. But we need to be aware. You see, I don't know that it's coming today or tomorrow, but how long does it take to have a baby? About nine months? How long does it take before they're weaned? At least a year? Maybe two? How long does it take before they're big enough to be able to face what is about to come. Well, you see, it takes some advanced planning and thinking ahead based on what we see happening in the world. So, be careful. Be thoughtful. And I'm not standing here, somebody will say, well, he's just trying to tell us, don't ever have another baby. You can take that approach if you want. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, be thinking, be aware, be reading the scriptures, and be sure you take it all into account in terms of planning your future. Because dire times are coming. I don't know when exactly, but they're closer than they were. Considerably closer. Well, what about those that were to have children at that time in that land, and today, in this land, as well as in the church, because Matthew 24 certainly is directed right at the church. Verse 4, they shall die of grievous deaths. If you have children, just before this holocaust hits, they will die grievous deaths. They shall not be lamented, neither shall they be buried, but they shall be as done upon the face of the earth. And they shall be consumed by the sword and by famine. And their carcasses shall be meat for the fowls of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. This is a warning to our nation. It's a warning to our people in the church who dwell in the nation. You do not want this to happen to your children. For thus says the eternal, Enter not into the house of mourning, Neither go to lament nor bemoan them, for I have taken away my peace from this people, says the Eternal, even loving kindness and mercies. 
Now, one of the fruits of God's Spirit is peace. Peace is something that we seek and wish to have between ourselves, among our brethren. It's something that is a goal and a purpose. And yet God says that even as important as peace is, He is deliberately removing it. He has removed it from the church. And our nation, which has been peaceful and not had wars on its shores, is going to have terrible war, famine, and pestilence on its shores. It's already started in small part, but it will widen. Both the great and the small shall die in this land. It won't matter who you are or who you think you are. God is not a respecter of persons. They shall not be buried, neither shall men lament for them, nor cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them. Neither shall men tear themselves for them in mourning to comfort them for the dead. Those were some of them pagan rites that people went through as part of their mourning. They cut themselves, brought pain upon themselves as a part of their show of mourning. We do it in, oh, I guess you'd call it more civilized terms today. We have soloists sing very uh, emotional music to try to wring the tears out. Rather than comfort and help as much as possible, they lay guilt and trouble upon them and try to get as many tears and as wails as they can. But God says it's not going to be that way. There's going to be so much death, so much destruction, that there will not be time, energy, or anything else to even bury them. They'll just be eaten by animals and birds where they fall. Hard to imagine in this country, isn't it? But it's going to happen. Neither shall men give them the cup of consolation to drink for their father or for their mother. No comforting, no helping, no kind words. It'll be so massive but there won't be time for that, or no one will care. It'll be dog-eat-dog in one sense. Somebody has trouble, they have somebody die in their family, so what? Somebody died in my family yesterday, died today. Who cares about yours is going to be the attitude. There will be so much death and destruction, there will be no comment. There will be no caring. There will be no funerals. There will be no nothing. Verse 8, you shall not also go into the house of feasting to sit with them to eat and to drink. Now this is, I think, pointed to Jeremiah again. Perhaps we could take a lesson from this, and a principle is here. Why go to someone else's feast? They don't know what they're doing. They're basically, most of the church, dead men walking. Or people who are asleep, spiritually. Why would we go to them? Do they have answers? Do they have the same old platitudes we've heard for years and years and years? Why do we go to the feast? Do we go to worship God? are to entertain ourselves. These things we need to think about. I think there's a principle here that could be very important for us. They're not really doing what they need to be doing. We are trying to wake up and be what we ought to be and to emphasize those things that God wants us to do. And it's hard enough for us, isn't it? Even though we see and recognize and read these things, and God says, turn with your whole heart to me, I find it very difficult to do. The human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, as we've already gone through in the very next chapter, which we should have been here first. So 
so if you know people aren't really motivated to do what is right, why would you want to sit and eat and feast with them? And he's talking not just about the world, but the church here. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, he calls upon his name in his majesty. Behold, I will cause to cease out of this place in your eyes, right before your very eyes, and in your days, not one time in the future, this generation will not pass away before these things happen. And I believe he's talking there in Matthew and Luke about this generation he has called into the church. Those who have been adults through the worldwide church of God age and afterward. The ones that he called. He is calling very few into the church now. He is calling, for that matter, very few of our children. A few are blessed to be called. But most are going their own way. So the generation he's talking about is the generation that is growing old, and there will be a few old men left to see the new temple as it is built, according to Haggai 2. So it will be in our eyes. This is not a prophecy for way off in the future. It is for right in front of us. I will cause the cease out of this place in your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride. So when it becomes so bad, there will be no joy, there will be no laughing, there will be no marrying, in other words, society is going to break down to the point that nothing is as it is today. It will all change. And it shall come to pass, when you shall show this people all these words, and they shall say to you, Wherefore has the Eternal pronounced all this great evil against us? Why is this happening? What's God doing? Or... What's my sin? What is our iniquity? Why is God doing this? What is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Now, why would you ask that if you were out in the world, perhaps, overtly, outwardly sinning, breaking all of God's commandments on a day-by-day basis? The ones who would ask this type of question are the ones who are trying to do what's right, more or less, maybe half asleep or asleep spiritually, in a fog. They say, we're keeping the feast, we're keeping the Sabbath, we're doing this, we're doing that. What's wrong? <laughs> Truly not understanding what's wrong. Most of the church today does not have a clue of what's wrong. And that's why they'll ask this. All right? Then God says, here's the answer to give them. Then shall you say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, says the Eternal, and have walked after other gods, and have served them, and have worshipped them, and have forsaken me, and have not kept my law. We're forgetting the words of God. Many of his words are dropping to the ground throughout the church. The church is drifting as a whole further and further from God, not scrambling to get closer to God. They're drifting with the current. And you have done worse than your fathers. God says this end time generation has done worse. Than our fathers. For behold, you walk everyone after the imagination of his evil heart, that they may not hearken to me. We have, in a word, our own ideas. We have our own fantasies. We have our own imaginations. We have our own desires. 
There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And we think, if we think it, it must be all right. Or we are willing to tolerate within our minds and our emotions certain things that might not be right. We allow ourselves to deceive ourselves, is what we do. Thinking we're okay. And yet, we're still filled with vanity and ego and self. He doesn't list here specific laws that we are breaking, but just that we are allowing our minds to go places they shouldn't go. Now, he gets a little more specific about part of it, a little, a little further down. Verse 13, Therefore will I cast you out of this land, into a land that you know not, foreign lands, be taken captivity in the Gentile lands. And the church is being taken captivity in all kinds of satanic worship. And by satanic worship, I don't mean necessarily just the occult. I mean Protestantism, Catholicism, and things that are so-called Christian, because they also are ungodly. The land you know not, neither you nor your fathers, and there shall you serve other gods day and night. For I will not show you favor. God is simply removing peace, and he's removing his favor. And you can cry grace, grace all you want, but God's grace is being removed. There is never a question in the Bible of whether it is law or grace. Mr. Armstrong explained that many times. It is not one or the other. It is law and grace. As long as you keep the law of God, you will have the grace and good favor of God. When you start breaking the law of God, you fall out of the grace of God, and you had better start obeying again so that his grace and peace will come back upon you. The two work in tandem. And at any given time in our life, we could be under law or under grace, depending upon our level of obedience and our relationship with God. So it is a constant job to stay in the grace of God. Now, that is where we need to be. And in some cases, he gives his grace when we don't deserve it, doesn't he? But at some point, he takes it away, and he says... I'm not going to relent. I'm not going to repent. It's coming. You've had it. It's what he's done to the church and what he's about to do to the church and the world. Verse 14. Therefore, behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that it shall no more be said, the Lord lives that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord lives that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he has driven them, and I will bring them again into their land that I gave to their fathers. Now, they went through 430 years of horrible captivity in Egypt. Well, not all of that time was in horrible captivity and slavery, but certainly the last time there was in very deep dire slavery. And recall the incredible miracles that it took to bring them out of there. All of those plagues that came on the Egyptians, which essentially destroyed the Egyptian empire. God allowed them to march out, and then he destroyed Pharaoh and his chariots, the military might of Egypt in the Red Sea. And then he had the cloud and the fire to lead them. He sent quail, he sent manna, food right from the air, water out of rocks. I mean, just, you can go out in the desert, old, dry, sun-baked rock, and living water came right out of it. Incredible miracles that God did. But what he's saying here 
is the delivery at the end time is going to be so incredible that it will make us forget the miracles of Egypt. That's how incredible it is going to be. What a deliverance. Now, I ask you, was the delivery of these people, once they had been in Babylon 70 years, something that made them forget Egypt? No. The original fulfillment of these prophecies laid out by Jeremiah were not fulfilled in that way at all. Now, I, God's hand was obviously there, and there were some miracles, and that Darius would listen and did allow them to go back to build Jerusalem. But there was no crossing of the Red Sea, and there weren't plagues on the Medo-Persian Empire and all of that that freed them. And it certainly didn't make them forget Moses and the Red Sea, did it? But this one that's coming is obviously then a much greater series of miracles and occurrences that happened when they came out of Babylon. Behold, I will send for many fishers, says the Eternal, and they shall fish them. And after, after will I send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. <coughs> for my eyes are upon all their ways. They are not hid from my face, neither is their iniquity hid from my eyes. So, God is going to ferret out sinners wherever they may be. He'll send fishers and hunters of men. Hunters and fishermen can be very, uh, that's the word I'm looking for, ardent at what they do. There are people who will get up and go fishing when it is very, very cold. 30, 40, 50 below zero. Now, ice fish. That's how much they're hooked on fishing. There are people who will go hunting in blizzards. They will hunt when it's 20, 30, 40 below zero. I've done it. I was into it. That's the kind of people he's going to send to seek sinners. His people who are dedicated to what they are doing. The Gentiles are going to be dedicated and wiping out Israel. Very dedicated. Because God knows our ways are not hid from our face. Now, this scripture could also apply, and certainly will, that once the wrath is gone then God is also going to send fishers and hunters to find those who will obey him, who will seek out those who now are humble and willing to obey. But first, he's going to fish out and hunt out all sinners. You can't hide from God. Neither is their iniquity hid from my eyes. And first, I will recompense their iniquity and their sin double. Now, what is the penalty of sin? It is death. Will he kill them twice? Is that what he's saying? No, I don't think so. What he's saying is, it's going to be a horrible death. It's not going to be just death. He's, you know, God, if God so chose, he could be in one sense very merciful in this, and he could just simply strike all sinners dead with heart attacks. Just like that. That wouldn't get the message across. God wants to be, or to do this, in such a way that it absolutely humbles mankind to the point they will then be ready to listen to God. So it is not going to be a sudden death that he sends upon the majority of the earth. It is going to be a process, and we've already read that emotion from person to person and love will not be there. It will just disappear. The death and destruction will be so bad. So I think when he says, I'll recompense their iniquity double, he means it's going to be the kind of trouble that is worse than death. You know, the book of Revelation says they'll cry for the rocks to fall upon them, but they won't. 
They would rather have the rocks fall and kill them than to live. It'll be so bad. But they won't get off that easy. I think that's what he's saying here. Because they have defiled my land, they have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable things. Child murder, abortion, moral decadence and decay, thievery, lying, blue-collar crime, white-collar crime, you name it. There is no just weight and measurement in the land. There is no giving you true value for your money. And your money has no true value either. It's sick from head to foot. Detestable and abominable. O Lord, my strength and my fortress and my refuge in the day of affliction. The only place we have to go, and that's the place we'd want to go. He has the power to help. The Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and shall say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, vanity, and things wherein there is no profit. They'll say, Shall a man make gods to himself? And they really are no gods. <laughs> this is going to be so bad that eventually the Hindus, the Buddhists, the Islamics, the Methodists, the Catholics, all of them will turn and say, this is all vanity and stupidity. Well, that's going to take an awful lot of leveling, isn't it? An awful lot of humbling. Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know my hand and my might. And they shall know that my name is Jehovah. There will be no doubt left in their mind as to who the one true God is. All of these so-called evolutionists and those who worship false gods. This is going to be so drastic, so terrible, that all the Gentiles even will give up their Buddhas and say, there is one God. Now, we've already gone through chapter 17 and 18. But to move forward in the flow, he mentions at the beginning that our sins are written down in iron and diamond. There's no denying them. They're just there. And then he it has a section beginning verse 5 where it says, Cursed be the man that trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, his protection. Verse 7, Blessed is the man that trusts in the Lord, whose hope is in the Lord. No, we, we trust in all kinds of things for our health, for our wealth, for our well-being, for our physical protection militarily, and so on. That is our way in this country. This is God's way. He says he's our protector. He says that he's our healer. He says that he is our provider. And we will come, and he will lead us to the point where we will say, give us this day our daily bread. And we will depend upon him for everything. How much do we trust God? How much do we believe God? Are we willing to turn loose of all this support system that our culture and society has made for us and depend upon God? How willing are we to do that? It's like him saying, you must be willing to give up lands, homes, fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, children, even your own life also, to come and follow me. God expects us to trust every aspect of life to him. That's what real faith is all about. But we, following the imaginations of our own heart, think that we can find health, strength, healing, wealth, food, 
for man. God will find out who is willing to trust him. He must know who is willing to trust him with every part of their life and including that physical life. He has to know. I think that is very evident with Abraham and Isaac. When Abraham raised his hand to slice his son's throat, God said, wait, now I know that you will do anything to follow me, including killing your own son. If Abraham was to be the father of the faithful, he had to be willing to go as far as our father in heaven was willing to go with his own son. And the father in heaven did slice his own son's throat, if you will. He gave him up. He allowed him to be sacrificed as a lamb sent to the slaughter. God is not asking us to do anything that he himself has not done. His son, who is now worthy of worship, has not done anything, or not done anything, except that he expects us to be willing to go the same distance, to do the same things. May or may not be required, but he made it very clear, if we seek to save this life, we'll lose it, and if we are willing to sacrifice it, we'll earn eternal life. How many people on the face of this earth Trust in the God of heaven to the point they are willing to give up their physical life for God. There are a lot of suicide bombers who would give it up for Islam. How many people in a so-called Christian nation today are willing to give up their lives to serve God? Now you say... If they came and pointed a gun at my head and said, keep Sunday or die, I would choose to die. Maybe we would. But what about on a daily basis? Are we willing to trust God with our health and our wealth? Or do we stick to our way and our imagination in the imaginations of this world. America has a fantasy. It has an imagination of its evil heart that it can protect itself from evil. Can it? The iron that we have cannot stop the northern iron. Won't happen. We have a fantasy of medical science can give us long life and health. And we'll trust them instead of God. That's an evil imagination of our hearts. It's not godly. Are we willing to trust our physical life to God? Or are we going to trust those in this world who have their, they think, Solutions. Now, God is going to visit on this people exactly what we have thought we are avoiding. We will have famine and grievous pestilence. We're trusting our politicians to keep the economy in such a way that we will have plenty to eat, and God is going to take away the food. We trust in our politicians to protect us from foreign enemies, but God is going to allow them to come in. We trust the medical community to take care of our health, and God will allow us to die of severe pestilence of all kinds of diseases of Egypt. Every idol that we trust in, God is going to destroy, and he's going to visit what we feared 
upon us. Now the church has already suffered spiritual famine, pestilence, and disease on a spiritual level, and most of the church is dead and dying around us. So you and I already have evidence that God's word is true. If this spiritual death and destruction has occurred and is still occurring, then we have an absolute guarantee that the physical pestilence, famine, disease, and death that he promises, if we will not put our trust in him, is coming as well. The human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Maybe we don't think that we have evil imaginations. But at what point is our trust in God so weak that we trust in man instead? I cannot legislate faith. You must make your own choices in terms of what you look to for your deliverance and your answers. I cannot legislate I can teach it. I can proclaim it. I can lead you to water. Can't make you drink. That has to be between you and God. You have to internalize these words, or you can choose to ignore them, and God will deal with you. But mark Jeremiah's words. Everyone will know Israel and all the Gentiles, there is one God, Jehovah. That is his point. The sooner we learn that, the better off we're going to be. Give, we pray to God, give us this day our daily bread. Protect us from those who would harm and hurt us. Keep us from the evil one. Keep us from temptation. Are those just spiritual words? Or is it just lip service? Do we believe them? Are we willing to stand by them and live them? If you don't know what you will do if you come down with cancer, you need to find out now. You need to think it through. You need to determine to whom you will look. Because if you don't do it now, when the time comes, you will weaken and you will wither and you will trust in someone other than God. If you don't know to whom you will look for physical food. When the time comes, you will weaken and you will wither. You had better make a commitment now in whom you will trust. We have a slogan in our nation, in God we trust. And it's a lie. It is an absolute lie. This nation does not trust in God at all. It trusts in its military, its politicians, its businessmen, and its doctors. That's what it trusts in. And God is a jealous God. Can it be said of us? Would God say of us? In God they trust. He will find out. He must say, now I know that no matter how we're tempted, no matter how we're tried, we will do what is right in spite of any feelings, any insecurities, any desires that we have. 
Any imaginations? Any fantasies? Any idols or other gods? He must know. And if he must know, he must find out. Cause and effect. And if he doesn't know, he is going to put you where he will find out. There's a great warning here for all of us. Now, he has put the church in a position where he is finding out. Some are in thorns, some are on hard ground, some are in good ground. Some will survive and some will wither and die. And only 10% are going to be found in good ground and thrive. That's all. Can't trust in flesh, and we better be very, very careful. Then he reiterates a lot about the Sabbath, the end of chapter, chapter 17, because it is a test commandment. And we'll find out whether or not we are willing to obey God and serve him, or whether wealth and money is more important than his Sabbath. That one is coming as a true test again. Chapter 18, he made another vessel. Potter has the ability to choose whether to keep a vessel or destroy it. Then he shows the virgin of Israel in verse 13 is not a very horrible thing. We're not willing to walk in the paths that God has set. The way that he has prepared is a highway to walk on, but we've chosen other paths, gone off the track. And how will be scattered as the east wind. And then they jumped all over Jeremiah because they didn't want to hear this. I will have probably someone jump over me because they don't want to hear this. That's okay. God wrote it. I'll read it. And we will either follow it or we won't. Verse 20, shall evil be recompensed for good? Isn't that what Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount? Don't recompense evil for evil, but recompense good. And he told God, remember that I stood before you to speak good for them and to turn away your wrath from them. But they wouldn't listen, so he said, let it happen. Just let it happen. They will not listen. So Jeremiah came to the same conclusion that God had come to. I'm not going to withhold any further. I'm going to let it happen. He's going to turn Satan loose. Well, we finally got to our starting point, chapter 19. Thus says Eternal, go and get a potter's earthen bottle. Now, we don't have potter's earthen bottles that we use commonly today. They carried water in those and grain and various things. We might say today, go get a mason jar. Well, not many, not many can anymore, so it'd be, maybe that wouldn't mean much to most American people. You couldn't say get a milk jug because you can't break it. We're in a plastic society. I don't know what, a, what analogy we'd have to use today. Take your TV screen, maybe. That's still made of glass, isn't it? I guess. Take a potter's urban bottle and take of the ancients of the people and of the ancients of the priests, those who should be wise by now, and go forth to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the east gate, the valley right outside Jerusalem, outside the city wall, the east gate, and proclaim there the words that I shall tell you. So he said, take this vessel that can be easily shattered, go outside the east gate to the valley of Hinnom, and say, hear you the word of the eternal, O kings of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring evil upon this place, the witch whosoever hears, his ears shall tingle. This will catch their attention. This is pretty strong. Dynamite. 
And when it talks about your children being killed, and don't even have children because they're going to be they're going to be killed horribly and rot where they fall or be eaten by birds and animals, that's enough to make you shiver and your ears tingle. That's the kind of message this is about our people to death and us if we're part of it. <coughs> because they have forsaken me and have estranged this place and have burned incense and do it unto other gods. God says that even in the church, those who were called out, we still have an awful lot of idolatry. We still have an awful lot of other things we trust in rather than the one true God. That's what idolatry is. Whom neither they nor their fathers have known nor the kings of Judah and have filled this place with the blood of innocence. They have built also the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I commanded not nor spoke it, neither came it into my mind. We've adopted all kinds of gods in our society the God was never thought of, but we have adopted. Therefore, behold, the days come, says the Eternal, this place shall no more be called Tophet, nor the valley of the Son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. We change the name of the valley to the valley of slaughter. Our church, our nation, are going to be called the valley of slaughter. I don't look forward to this, don't want to go through it, I want to be on the other side of it. We want things to hasten so that Christ can come to this earth, and he does indeed say, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. So we want to pray for that day, and we want it to come, but between now and then, there's an awful lot of death, blood, destruction, and hatred that has to occur. But I will make void, verse 7, the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place. All the things that they counsel to do, be it the church or be it the nation, God is going to make it void, null and void. I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies. And by the hands of them that seek their lives, and their carcasses will I give to be meat for the fowls of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth. And I will make this city desolate and then hissing. Everyone that passes thereby shall be astonished and hiss because of all the plagues thereof. Now, is this limited to Jerusalem only, that city? No. Jerusalem was the capital. When other Nations refer to America, sometimes they'll say, well, Washington says. Washington is simply the symbol of all America. Jerusalem is the symbol of the whole church and of all Israel as the capital. So it includes the whole thing, not just a city. This isn't a prophecy against that physical city in, Jer in the Israel today. It's against all Israel. And I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. Now, does that make your back tingle in your ears? It sends a chill up and down my spine that comes right up my neck and right into my ears just to read these words. He's talking about now. He's talking about our country We've read stories of cannibalism in the cities of Poland in World War II. We've heard about it in Dachau, Buchenwald. We've heard of it in isolated cases here and there. We've heard of the Donner Party. It's happened in this land when people got very hungry. I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. I cannot imagine eating my own child. 
it is going to happen here and soon. And they shall eat every one the flesh of his friend in the siege and straightness wherewith their enemies and they that seek their lives shall straighten them. The slavery, the unkindness, the meanness of an incoming Gentile horde is going to make things so bad the people will eat their children and their friends. Then shall you break the bottle in the sight of the men that go with you. I am going to break this people, God says, just like you would break a clay pot. Shatter it into pieces. And you shall say to them, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, Even so will I break this people in this city as one that breaks a potter's vessel that cannot be made whole again. Shatters it so badly it cannot be put together again. All the king's horses and all the king's men cannot do it. Drop a plate on the floor. Let it shatter into a thousand pieces. Try to put it back together. You can't do it. It's going to happen to us. And they shall bury them in Tophet till there be no place to bury. And then they'll lay on the ground. Thus will I do to this place as the eternal and to the inhabitants thereof and even make this city as Tophet. That was a city where a lot of people died in Israel's history. Second Kings 23. And the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah shall be defiled as the place of Tophet because of all the houses upon whose roofs they have burned incense to all the hosts of heaven and have poured out drink offerings to other gods. <coughs> we go on eating and drinking, doing our thing in our so-called American culture, so-called Christian American culture, and it is an abomination to God. Now, God is going to destroy this nation. What we need to do, brethren, is look at this society, this culture around us, and think about it in terms of Almighty God being so upset that he is going to break it like an earthen vessel to the point we eat our own children. That's how bad God hates America's culture. How bad do you hate America's culture? You grew up in it. Chevrolet, apple pie, and baseball. God hates the way Americans think and live. Now, are we going to bring the precious from the vile, or are we not? Are we going to look at every part of this culture and declare it vile or not? Or will we cling to its ways, its habits, its foods, its entertainment, its music, its dress, those cumulatively, cumulatively are the things God hates. Now we, in our evil imaginations, Jeremiah says, will deceive ourselves into thinking, yeah, but this part is okay because I like it. This part must be okay because I like it. How much of it can you find in this book that God is going to preserve? He is going to smash it as a potter's vessel. How much of a mason jar that you throw on a concrete floor is salvageable? That's how much God is going to salvage of our culture. 
Now, he tells us clearly that we are to separate the precious from the vile. He says in Haggai that the priests will not discern the clean from the unclean. That means to me that the majority of the ministry in the greater church of God today will not tell you the difference between bad and good, clean and unclean, or precious and vile. They will not do it. And God will destroy the church as a result of that. going to do? Are we going to say the way we were doing it worldwide is okay? Are we going to say the way that it is being done in the splinters today is still okay? Because God is going to destroy it before he destroys the nation. And everything of this world that the church clings to, will be destroyed with them. He's not talking about just the people in this world going about their carnal way of living, eating their own children. He's talking about church people eating their own children. Ninety percent of the church will go into the tribulation. Scripture is very clear about that. And in that tribulation, church people will eat their children just like others in the world will eat their children. What they are showing by being cast into that tribulation is that they have chosen the vile, temporary, vain things to feed and protect them instead of God. That's what they're showing. Now we can be counted with them or we can separate the precious from the vile. I spend a great deal of time zeroing in on this because right here what we're reading today is going to be the result of going along like the rest of the church. That's going to be the result. The only way we're going to avoid that is to make some changes in our lives. Now, you can listen to Daryl Holler some more if you want to, or you can turn to deaf ear internally and go on eating the things you're eating, doing the things you're doing, watching the things you're watching, or you can make some changes. You can trust in America's military might. You can trust in the medical world. You can trust in anything other than God that you wish to. You can. And if you do, you can eat your children. That's what it's going to come down to. You don't think you'd do that. You don't know your human nature. You don't know yourself if you think that. God has the capacity to put enough pressure on that you will do things that you never thought you would do. He's going to do. So we can be carnal, and we can be selfish, and we can seek the things we want, and our desires, and our evil imaginations, or we can repent and do what we're supposed to do. It's hard. It's difficult. We like what we like. 
We don't want to turn loose of things that we like. But we have to. We must. Nobody here wants to be a part of what God says is coming on the church and the world. Nobody here wants to be part of that. You sit here and think about it very seriously. But if we drift and we don't separate the precious from the vile, that's where we're going to wind up. This is a life or death matter. Therefore, choose life, not death, not horrible death. Because it's coming, it's coming soon. He says, I'm going to do it. Verse 13, the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah, the government, shall be defiled as a place of token, the ministry, if you will, not just the civil government, but the religious government of the church. Because of all the houses upon whose roofs they have burned incense to all the hosts of heaven. To Satan and his demons going his way. God really doesn't like our society. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. He didn't like it at all. Verse 14, Then came Jeremiah from Topet, where the Eternal had sent him to prophesy. And he stood in the court of the Lord's house and said to all the people, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring upon this city and upon her town, all her towns, so not just Jerusalem, but all the other towns, because Jerusalem was just the capital. Those towns today are not just Ashkelon and Bethlehem and Nazareth. Those towns today are Chicago and New York and San Francisco and Houston and Dallas and Omaha and Denver and Seattle and Atlanta and Miami and all others. I will bring upon this city and upon all her towns all the evil that I have pronounced against it, because they have hardened their necks that they might not hear my words. Now you can be hardened and think I'm just trying to be dramatic. Hey, this isn't something I dreamed of. This is in the Word of God. And it's to this generation. And it's to this people. And we yet have chance, have opportunity to separate the precious from the vile, the clean from the unclean, and to live clean, godly lives the way he desires, not what our culture has taught us. I know it's difficult to separate from the American dream and the American way, but it's all coming down in flames. So let's not be stiff-necked and rebellious and carnal, but let's realize what God thinks of us collectively and what he's about to do to those who will not hear his words. Let's stop right there for today. I think that's plenty to chew on.